All right, if you remember, we still have a little bit uh, to finish from Ruth chapter 2. I know Ruth chapter 3 is exciting because it's, it's the, the courtship, it's the stuff that uh, we're looking forward to in terms of the romance even uh, that God reveals in His Word that is blessed by God. So we're going to get to that in a few minutes, but I just wanted to go back uh, and finish the end of Ruth chapter 2, and I, I feel badly for you in some ways because you have to endure all these sessions all day, but it has been refreshing as I've talked to uh, some of you just to see the way in which the Lord has taught us again through the Old Testament. Maybe for some of you these, these pages in the Old Testament are as, as crinkly and new as when you first bought your Bible from the bookstore uh, because we get a little scared to go into the Old Testament sometimes. The New Testament is more refreshing for us. But if anything, I hope that the Lord has demonstrated to you that there is so much to learn from the Old Testament. We see in the New Testament, of course, the full revelation of Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, we have faith illustrated. And we need those illustrations as well of how do we walk in obedience to Christ? How do we follow Christ? How do we have faith that is pure towards Christ? And so I trust you've been encouraged. Isn't the Bible rich in all its variety? There is so much, and uh, eternity isn't enough uh, to study it. And so we've been looking at the, the foundry of faith in chapter 2, and we had gone up to uh, verse 13, and we had been looking at Boaz, who was a man who cared with godliness, and he was a man who cared by being consecrated to God. Just to recap, in verse 4, he started his day with with just pointing people to all blessing coming from God. He was a man who cared through counsel, and he even looked at Ruth as a helpless woman, and all that he was and all that he had, he recognized, came from God so that he could counsel and guide and help those in time of need. And then we looked at the comfort that he provides for her, and she even says, you have spoken, in verse 13, kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. And then finally, just as we kind of wrap up with Boaz, we see him caring through compassion and really meeting her needs in a specific way. It's not enough to just say, I love you, you can start there and I care for you. You also have to act on that, just like God did in Jesus Christ. God so loved that he gave, and there's so much there because he gave his only son on Calvary who lives to intercede for us forever. And we start there. God loves through actions. And so we can see even in verses 14 through 16, this is back in chapter 2, of Boaz's compassion through actions. Verse 14, at at mealtime, if you're looking at it, verse 14 of chapter 2, Boaz said to her, come here. He calls her near, which which is so interesting. She's being so respectful. And she, even though she's received all this grace and favor, she's still standing at a respectful distance away from him, away from the servants. So there was probably some kind of an inner circle where Boaz and the managers and all of that were sitting. And he says, come here, come closer. And why does he call her? Because he says that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. If you've ever been to an Italian restaurant, you know of the blessings of having some of that fresh-baked bread, right? And that's what they would do in this, this field. There was even baking going on. And then you dip it in the olive oil, which is very pricey and expensive. And it's not usually given to low-class servants. It's only for those that are part of the inner circle. 
and then a little bit of balsamic vinegar, you know, fine stuff that is, is brewed for, for a long time. And what Boaz is saying is, you're like my family now. Don't sit on the outskirts of the servants. I want you to sit in with my family. And I want you to eat some of the choicest food from my table. That's what Jesus does to us, doesn't he? He says, though you were once my enemies, I want you to sit as not just servants, but I want you to sit as friends at the table of God. And you can see that pictured a little bit even in what Boaz does. He's a, he, he's a picture of Christ. It's amazing how Christ, yes, he did take care of spiritual needs, but so many times when he was ministering, he saw the 5,000 men along with women and children. It may have been 10,000 and he turns to his disciples and talks about the issue of even food. Our God is a God who thinks about the mundane and the big. And everything is under his care. And you can see Boaz reflecting a little bit of this. Isn't it interesting, as she sat beside the reapers, Boaz even himself personally serves her. He doesn't say, hey, you little servant on the side there, will you serve this lady? But it says... He himself and this, this, this lady must have just been trembling in shock and amazement as she sees the man who owns this entire field and this business taking the time to even put a plate in front of this poor, destitute widow and say, you're my daughter now, let me feed you. What an amazing, practical act of compassion. And he served her roasted grain. I remember being on a friend's farm and he had just taken some fresh grain off the farm and just roasted it on the fire and then we sprinkle a little lime and salt on it and it's way better than any popcorn you can get in, in, in a movie theater, just fresh off the field. And, and Boaz is, is, is really lavishing upon her a sense of provision that is not just abstract but is so practical. And look at this, probably for the first time in many days she ate and was satisfied and had some left. Doesn't that remind you of the exact phraseology of Jesus feeding the 5,000? There were 12 baskets left. When God provides, He provides in such a way that there is more than what we need above and beyond what we can ask or imagine. And Boaz reflects that same sense of just thinking in such a generous way and being sufficient in the way in which He took care of this, this dear lady. Not only does he provide food, but he thinks even beyond that, he also provides work for her. When she rose to glean, verse 15, Boaz commanded his servants saying, let her glean not just the leftovers now, let's go beyond what even the law of God says, but let her be in the middle where you're getting the sheaves, where you're getting the choice stalks, and let her get some of those juicy stalks of grain and take them home. And he says, do not insult her. In fact, he said, just a little bit on the sly, he said, verse 16, purposely pull out some for her from the grain and leave it there so that she gets them. You know, if they're difficult, you men, you need to pull out some of the ones that maybe she can't pull out and just put it in front of her so that she may go home with her hands full. And the result was what Ruth works until evening. So she gleaned in the field until evening. I, I, I'm thinking that if she started at 4 a.m., this is like a 12 to 16 hour shift maybe. And not only is she gleaning, 
But as she gleans in verse 17, she beats out what she had gleaned, and it was an ephah of barley. Beating wheat, I don't know if you've tried it. I don't know if any of you are farmers. Maybe you can teach me something about this. Is hard work. I think the gleaning might be the easier part, even though that's backbreaking and taking 50. And then what she did was she just worked and worked. She got all this grain and then she put it on the threshing floor. They usually had a high elevated stone floor or a beaten down mud floor. And then they would take stones, heavy stones, because you need strong elements in order to pull that wheat that is useful for making bread out of the stalks. And so you just go with this and you bang on it. Ruth didn't need to go to the gym. I mean, she was a hard worker. She, she worked until she was productive. And God's grace encourages holy work. One commentator even says, an ephah of grain, there's a debate about how much this is. He, he says it was about 40 kilos. Use kilos here in Australia? I mean, the woman lifted weights. <laughs> she was carrying 40 kgs. I carry a 30 kg suitcase here to, the, to Australia. And I was whining and complaining, but, but she picks up out of all that she had, she had threshed out of the stalks. And it, it's about 40 kilos of, of grain that is productive and useful to bake with of barley. The more you have been given of grace, the more is expected of you, isn't it? Luke chapter 12 and verse 48. And the more you receive, the more you should give. Because this manifests the sufficiency of Christ. When you experience the sufficiency of Christ, you should live in greater exploits of work and generosity even towards others. And you can see kind of the chain reaction because Boaz is so generous, it produces even a generous attitude in Ruth. And so the final lesson that we learn here is now, as we go back to Ruth, is that the, the furnace of faith produces in Ruth a commitment to live in gratefulness. One of the marks of a Christian is that we are thankful we are grateful. Unbelievers don't know how to give thanks. In fact, sometimes believers don't know how to give thanks. That's why Paul says, as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what do you need to do? Stop complaining. And stop becoming like the nation of Israel. Out of the ten lepers that Jesus healed, only one came back with gratefulness out of genuine repentance for Jesus Christ. And so Ruth shows that she is just filled with a sense of gratefulness for what God has done. Look at what she does. She gleaned, verse 17, again until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and then verse 18, she does what? She doesn't just bake a piece of bread for herself, but she takes it, walks back into the city with this 40 kg sack, <laughs> And her, and, and, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and she took it out and she gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Faith acts in generosity. And Ruth responds, maybe Naomi was still in mourning at this point and she needs to have some, some help in thinking about God's grace. And so daughter-in-law just comes back and says, mom-in-law, here is what God has done today. It's a 40 kg sack of food. We're going to be eating good for the next month, maybe. 
And you can just see that sense of Ruth wanting to say, what I have is not just for me, but it's for others because I got it from God. Faith acts in generosity. Faith acts in gratefulness. And Naomi is obviously amazed because she starts shooting off these rapid-fire questions to her daughter-in-law. Her mother then said to her, verse 19, where did you glean today and where did you work and what's going on? What's happening? And Ruth mentions that she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and she said, the name of the man with whom I worked is Boaz. You've got to remember that, that they, she hadn't gone home yet. Naomi had no idea what had happened in God's grace. She didn't know about Boaz being a relative, but she wasn't aware of the fact that the Lord had guided Ruth to be in that exact field. And then even more, she wasn't aware of the way in which God had worked in just building out the sense of respect between Boaz and Ruth in his sweet providence. And so Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, she says, may he be blessed her morning turns into praying. Her morning turns into, into praise. May he be blessed of Yahweh who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Now this phrase has come up again and again and it reminds us that in Israel at this time and in the Middle East in general, widows had a huge stigma and they were not shown kindness. You remember even Jesus dealing with that widow and and how she, she thought about in John chapter 4 of herself and just the rejection that she had. But they were often ostracized. And I was reading some of the early literature. There was a high rate of suicide among widows because of the way in which they were treated as even worse than the, the lowest of the low, almost among the lepers. And she says, God has done something amazing where both of us as widows are experiencing, instead of a shunning, we're experiencing grace. We're experiencing kindness. And for the first time, she mentions and uses this word in verse 20. She said again to her, the man is our goel. That's the word goel. That's the first time the word goel occurs in this, this book. And it's going to occur another ten times now, all through this next two chapters. And I put it in your notes, and I'm not going to read it in great detail, but a goel's redemptive role... In, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, was fivefold. And you can read that on your own. I won't go through all those passages. But what is interesting is, is most of his role had to do with rescuing his relatives out of poverty, rescuing them out of financial distress. What is unusually absent, especially in the discussions of the Goel in the Old Testament, is this idea of marrying somebody. That was really above and beyond a Goel. That was usually done, Deuteronomy 25, for someone who was an actual brother of a dead husband. Not necessarily a distant relative. And, and what I want you to note here, and this is very interesting, is in this passage, and, and this kind of opened my eyes to this, is there is no sense of obligation necessarily for Boaz to marry Ruth. But both Naomi and Ruth are thinking even above and beyond what the law would imply for a goel, and they're, they're seeking to even see if this man in his grace would even take up the function that a brother would take. And Bo, Boaz's hands aren't tied in terms of marrying Ruth. And you're going to see this in a minute. 
And so generosity is the first way in which the gratefulness of, of Ruth works. But there's another interesting way in which chapter 2 ends. And you look at uh, verse 21. And Ruth the Moabitess said, Mom in law, there was another thing. Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Something you want maybe recognize in the English text is the word that Ruth uses there is male servants. You remember, even if you go back to what Boaz had said, he said, stay with my maids, right? He was a wise counselor. He said, don't hang out with the men. <laughs> You're a woman, alone in the field. You stay with my maids. And you can see, Ruth isn't perfect. And she makes a, a slip of forgetfulness. And she says, mom-in-law, in all the excitement, instead of saying, he said to me, hang out with the women, she said, he said, be with the men. And immediately... Naomi corrects her. And she says, Naomi, verse 22, Naomi says to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with the maids, not with the men. <laughs> and this is her being a Titus 2 woman, so that others do not fall upon you in another field. I think another aspect of just gratefulness is learning how to live under counsel. And when you're grateful and you recognize that all grace comes from God, you even recognize that you continue to need more grace and you can't just live by your own opinions and your own ideas. And Ruth is being wisely counseled by Naomi to say, now as you live out this grace that God has given you, continue to submit it to the counsel of His Word. And as an older woman, she reminds her, just being under grace isn't enough. You need to continue to be sustained by grace that comes through good thinking and wise thinking. In fact, Naomi is, is quoting, remember they had only about seven books. She's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 25. So relevant in our day where there's sexual assault and sexual abuse and rape. We have a lot of that in India even. And the wise counsel of Deuteronomy 22 was on the mind of Naomi as she was thinking about her daughter-in-law. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy 22, 25, and 26. It says, But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her or rapes her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. Verse 26, But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. There's the sensitivity of the Bible. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. You know what's interesting there? God sees rape as equal to murder. And he gives the same penalty to it. Maybe some of our justice systems need to learn something from this as we reflect on this. But what Naomi's saying is, daughter, I don't want you to get into that situation so you don't go in the field where there are just men around you because that's usually where assault takes place. And so you make sure that even as you're enjoying the grace of God, you continue to live under the Word of God and be wise as a serpent and make sure that you're only surrounding yourself with other women as you do this work and enjoy His grace. You do it with integrity. You do it in dependence upon Him. We should never seek to see grace as a place where we can play loose and fast with obedience to God. Look at the purity 
in some senses, if, if Naomi hadn't given this counsel, chapter 3 wouldn't have happened and it would have been tragedy again. And see the wisdom of Naomi. Look at the, the gratefulness of Ruth where she doesn't say, oh, you're just an older lady. You don't know what's going on. I'm a young woman. I can deal with it. You know, She doesn't fight back. She obeys. She listens because she wants the grace of God. She didn't allow the grace of God to make herself arrogant. Verse 23, she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. Some, some have estimated that this was about four months. Four months of 14 to 16 hour shifts. You know, we want to rush straight to chapter 3, and they got married, hallelujah. But there was four months of back-breaking work that this woman demonstrated even before God brought her that point of great blessing. George Mueller reminds us of just the power of faith. I trust some of you get to read some of these biographies of, of these, these men that walk by faith. They can, they can teach us so much, like Hebrews 11. George Mueller said, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Martin Luther said this, God our Father has made all things depend on faith so that whoever has faith will have everything and whoever does not have faith will have nothing. And I would dare say as you, you look at chapter 2, many of us are suffering in this world because we're not living by faith. We're living by sight. And God is waiting for us to recognize that He is greater than our resources. He is greater than our own ability. And as we depend upon Him, He can lead us in pathways of greater grace and greater success that is spiritual success for His name's sake. And so that's the end of chapter 2. And now we get to... They told me I can preach till 4.30. I don't know if you guys are going to stay with me till 4.30. Uh, I, was, I was preaching at one of my friend's church and he said, I asked him, how long can, you pre- can I preach? And he said, you can preach as long as you want. But at lunchtime, we're all leaving. <laughs> so you can do the same if you want and give me a hint, you know, that time is up. But we, we want to look at, of course, this, this amazing chapter, chapter 3, as our last session for today, which shows us how God brings these people together. Remember, again, it wasn't an obligation for Boaz to marry Ruth, but he does it as an extra act of grace because of God's grace in his life. And so chapter 3 isn't the marriage, but it's the courtship that leads up to the marriage. So much for us to learn from this. I mean, marriage is something that is an enigma and a mystery for so many of us. Even someone as smart as Albert Einstein, and he was smart in many scientific, worldly ways, he, he, he messed up a lot in marriage, and I'll let you read all of that. He had two marriages, and the last, I think, 30 years of his life, he gave up on marriage. And he said something like this, you know, just in terms of his frustration with marriage. He said, women marry men, hoping they will change. Men marry women, hoping they will not. And so, in the end, it's just a mess, and everyone's disappointed. And that was kind of his attitude. You had another uh, famous person. Do, do you guys read Agatha Christie and all her mystery novels? Maybe some of you are from India. She, oh, yeah, there's some hands up there. Uh, it's, it's from a previous generation. 
Uh, and she, even she, as an unbeliever, she had two marriages, but her last marriage was particularly sweet, uh, and it lasted all the way until her death in 1976 uh, to a, a man named Max Mallowan. He was an archaeologist. She said, I made the right choice. She said, an archaeologist is the best husband any woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. <laughs> and so everybody has their spin, you know, on what the formula is to a good marriage. Praise God, we have a, a chapter like this that shows us the biblical ingredients that go into a marriage that can be a blessing. And so God's wisdom goes higher than man's wisdom. And so we get to look at that in chapter 3. The roles that God can produce in a man and woman's life as they walk by faith that makes them more productive even so their marriages can be a blessing. And there's something to learn for all of us in this. If you're not married, you get to be ahead of the curve a little bit and, and learn some of these lessons through the scriptures rather than learning them by making errors. If you're married, there's, there's a chance for you to, to renew your commitments as you look at this passage and say, Lord, help me to be more the man or the woman that you would desire of me and to cause greater healing and even growth in my marriage. And so there's something to learn for, for all of us as, as we look at the productivity that God produces in Ruth and Boaz as they, they seek to come together in a marriage that pleases God. And so four productive aspects of faith where a man becomes a Christ-like man and a woman becomes a Christ-like woman that we can learn from this passage. So let's look at chapter 3 and ask the Lord to refine even our thinking on the relationships that He's given us in marriage and in the church. The first, we, first two we find in, in Ruth, as you look at chapter 3, in the beginning and, and the first five verses, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, this is chapter 3, verse 1, said to her, my daughter, and this is the, if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, this is the Yenta, you know, she's seeking to go a little bit beyond, now we've got barley and all of that, but we need a little bit more. My daughter, shall I not seek security for you? that it may go well with you. I'm thinking a little bit beyond just going into Boaz's field and getting some, some, some grain. I'm thinking about a more permanent arrangement here. And so as she, she counsels her, she says in verse 2, Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Isn't he a, a goel? Can't we think a little bit more? Uh, behold, he winnows barley at threshing floor tonight. You know, he's a hard worker just like you. And so what he does is he doesn't just sit there and say, workers, we've got the grain, now you thresh it. But he actually, as the boss, he goes into the threshing floor. So this has probably been, they've been observing him for a few months. And she says he's always there in the night when all the workers go home and he threshes because he's a single man. He doesn't want to waste time. So he goes to his floor and he is the boss. He threshes the grain himself. Both of these guys were... Ruth and Boaz were skilled at threshing. And, and the whole goal that Naomi has in all of this is, as you look at verse 3, wash yourself, you know. The clothes you're wearing aren't, aren't really the kind that, that will work for the situation, daughter-in-law. You can see the, the wisdom and the craftiness in a very godly way that Naomi has. She says, you need to wash yourself, therefore, and, and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes. 
and go down to the threshing floor. Now, I think what Naomi is saying, and some have misunderstood, is not, you know, go to the beauty parlor and get dolled up and, you know, you know attract this guy. But I think there's, there's even a, a more basic issue here. What Naomi is saying is that Ruth had been wearing the, the clothes of mourning this whole time. She was still mourning. And widows would normally, uh, in, in that culture, wear black and, and it would be sometimes covered with, with ashes and sometimes they would even tear their clothes and, and just show that representation of them being a, a woman that is in mourning and experiencing the heavy hand of God. And so what Naomi is actually telling Ruth, she's saying, daughter, you need to stop mourning. And you need to stop living in what has happened and you need to look expectantly to God in the future of what will happen. The same uh, language is used of, you remember when David was uh, mourning for his son that God had said that he would take in 2 Samuel 12, 12, 20 when he heard that his son had died and he said, well, he's with the Lord now. David arose from the ground and the same words that Naomi used, he washed himself. He was, he was in sackcloth and ashes. He took his sackcloth and ashes off. He washed himself. He anointed himself with you know, perfumes and oils and he changed his clothes and his outer garment and he came into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. And it's, it's similar phraseology that, that Naomi is telling Ruth. Sometimes in the ancient world, again, as I was doing my research, a widow could live in mourning and sackcloth and ashes for even a decade. And this is pretty drastic that, that both these women now are beginning to have this hope and saying, stop the mourning. Because God is going to do something here. We're looking to Him expectantly. Stop wearing those rags now and wear clothes that are clothes of expectancy. And so it's not even so much to impress Boaz, but I think it's to have faith in God in this situation. And so the first productive aspect of, of faith that we see here is, is just a stability in God that Naomi is counseling Ruth to have that you would not look at your circumstances and just be somebody that just thinks negatively about life, but you would look at the throne room of heaven and say, because I'm a child of God, I will remove my clothes of mourning and I will begin to wait on the Lord and look for His goodness. Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. For His anger is but for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. We live sometimes the opposite way, don't we? thinking that God's anger is for a lifetime. And that's what Naomi's telling her. We've been through the heavy hand of God. We needed it. But His favor is so much greater. Let's look to that now. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Again, one of the most precious ways in which I learned this was when my grandma on my dad's side passed away. So several years ago, and my dad was going to do the funeral and she was a, a woman that had been a great example of godliness and she had cared for the family for decades with a drunk husband, single-handedly taken care of the family, gone out and got whatever job she could, provided, you know, scraped through and raised all her kids. And I was just looking at my dad and thinking, she, she trusted in Christ and I was thinking, how is he going to do this funeral without breaking down because of all that she had done? And my dad was 
just such an example of, of joy and hope, even though it was his mom's funeral, we were weeping, and he was lifting us up with the hope in Christ of saying, she has finished her race now, and she's at the right hand of Jesus, and we need to be rejoicing because her life is better than ours now. And, and that is the way in which God can produce joy and hope in our lives as we, as we think about what he can do ultimately through the resurrection. We don't weep like the world, right? We weep, but for a moment. And that's what Naomi is reminding Ruth of. But not only does she say, be stable in joy, Philippians, right? Rejoice. Sometimes that's all we stop with, rejoice. That's frustrating. You go to somebody who's just experienced a death in the family and say, rejoice, they probably want to punch you in the face. Because you've got to finish the phrase, it is rejoice in the Lord. And that can turn the worst of circumstances into a season of even saying he is good. Even though I may not be out of the bad situation, Paul even says when we pray, we pray with thanksgiving, right? In Philippians chapter 4. Because we know who God is. But she's not only stable in joy, but she's also stable in submission. Verse 3 after she says, wash yourself, she says, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. Just a little bit. I love Naomi. She's so wise. She says, don't interrupt a tired man. Okay? Like a dog eating a bone. Let him finish his food first. <laughs> and don't just get into his face and say, hey, 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 I want to marry you. You know, wait for him. Wait for him. Just a lot of wisdom. Verse 4, she says this, it shall be when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down and then he shall tell you what you shall do. A sign of, of submission, of, of waiting for him to take the lead, not taking the initiative even, but waiting for him to say, okay, this is where this is going to go. Is there a chance here for a relationship or you know, is it over? And there's no immorality here. You know, so many people have talked about her uncovering his feet. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to see this in a little while. It's again that picture of God allowing us to be under the shade of his skirt. And verse 5, Ruth says to her mom-in-law, not, you know, you're just an old lady and I don't think you know what, you know how this stuff works anymore. You know, I, I Googled it and I know how to woo a man. You know, she says... I love the wisdom that you have. All that you say, because it comes from the Word of God, I will do. Are you a person that lives by your own counsel? And I think this is a lesson for both men and women to learn. And oftentimes I think this is the reason why we fail in the productivity of our relationships that God can give us in the church. Proverbs 11, verse 14, where there is no guidance, the people fail. But in the abundance of counselors, there is victory. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of Yahweh, it will stand. And so I, I would direct you, especially if you're a young man or a young woman, who are the Naomi's or the Boaz's in your life that you can see as the Titus II woman or the Titus II man that gives you counsel, that can protect you from even dangerous relationships, especially when it comes to thinking about that, that relationship of marriage. I praise God. When I look back at my life, 
before my wife now, I praise God for giving me my wife, but there were a couple of other girls that I was thinking of pursuing, and I praise God, because when you're in love, you're just dumb. You, you don't think straight. I praise God for other brothers and even some sisters that knocked me sideways and said, you're just doing something that's not going to work for you, Sammy, and it's not going to help you to do ministry. And I was like, no, no, and, and praise God for their persistence in protecting me because you need the counsel of other people, especially when you're making this important decision in your life. Don't trust your emotions. <laughs> you need to have the objectivity of other godly men and women in your life. And so Ruth has that. We're going to see something else in Ruth as, as she becomes a real example of, of feminine godliness in verses 6 and following. Not only is she stable in God, but she's also satisfied in submission. Submission has become a dirty word today, hasn't it? Submission. You know, those men are just seeking to oppress us. And there has been a lot of exploitation. There has been a lot that men have done that has caused this word to be demeaned. But we need to go back to the scriptures rather than to culture, which is saying to a woman that you can only be fulfilled when you do everything that you want without leadership. And that is not God's way. The, the rise of feminism, especially in marriage, has, I would say, destroyed many marriages. And God desires our happiness. And happiness comes from obedience. And this is his pattern. And so we, we learn from Ruth even the ways in which she, she enjoys submission. She doesn't see it as something that she shies away from, but she says, this is my God-given pleasure, my God-given role to be submissive. She's not even married yet, but she's learning submission even in the home. She learns submission first by doing everything that Naomi says because she sees submission as a powerful way to live, not for Ruth, not for what I want, but for what, what will bless even Naomi. Look at verse 6. She went down to the threshing floor, and very strong language is used. She did all that her mother-in-law had not just suggested to her, but that her mother-in-law had commanded her. You're saying, she's a grown woman. What's going on here? You know, it, it jars against some of the modern cultural ideals that we have. And yet the way in which Ruth thought is she said, as long as I'm not married and I'm under the roof of my, my mom-in-law even, I will submit to her. And it's, it's not just an issue of submitting in marriage, but it's just the idea of recognizing that all of us are under authority. By the way, even men, we're under authority, right? And just recognizing that authority is a good thing and being without authority is dangerous. This woman has a, a great sense of pleasure in, in not just doing some of the things that Naomi did, but what? All the things that Naomi had commanded her. A godly woman who honors God's word and wants to serve Naomi. And so you see the way in which she submits now, even in her relationship with Boaz. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, and you know some have said he was drunk. I don't think that's the idea here. I think it's just that he was satisfied in his food and in his work, it said he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. A couple of things there that are even humorous. Uh, he laid down by a pile of grain. The, the Hebrew is even more exaggerated. It was used of piles of rubble that soldiers collected after a battle. 
you know, of all the shields. And what it was saying is this man threshed, I mean, root threshed 40 kgs. I don't know what he did. I mean, like 150 kgs or something. There was just a big pile by his side. And because of that, it said he lay down. There's that sense of a man that works hard and a man that sleeps hard. <laughs> Some of you struggle with insomnia. The best cure for insomnia sometimes is hard work. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor or his sweaty toil is good. This also I have seen is from the hand of God. And, and Ruth notices all of this, but she doesn't reveal her, herself to Boaz. She, she respects Boaz, and more importantly, she respects his work ethic, and she waits for him to be done for all these things. And look at, she's, she's a stealthy woman. In verse 7, she came secretly. Even that was a, a word that was used for a guerrilla soldier that comes in such a way that the enemy can't notice. And so she comes in such a way that she doesn't interrupt the good and godly things that this man is doing. It's not about, hey, I need my, my life taken care of. I need my marriage taken care of. But she waits. She submits to God. She even submits to Boaz and, and the things that he needs to do for God. And then she uncovered his feet and laid down. Again, that's not a sign of impurity. That's a sign of submission and service. You look at Old Testament and New Testament pictures of this. You remember Jairus? The synagogue official, when he recognized Jesus for Lord and Master, what did he do? It said in Mark 5.22, upon seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. And I think that's the attitude that Ruth is conveying even in this passage. She's just having a submissive spirit. You can see that even she waits in verse 8 until when? Until midnight without stirring, without waking this man up because of the hard work that he had done. She doesn't want to interrupt him. In that, she is showing a sense of great reverence and care for, for who he is. She rests in the Lord, not in her own agenda, not even in the, the man, Boaz. You know, submission is a powerful thing. Several years ago, we had a, a student in our seminary and he was sharing with us at graduation the story of how he got saved. And he said, before I came to the seminary, pastoral training seminary, he said, I was a man that hated God. But my wife was a believer. And because of that, he said, I was a Roman Catholic and she had committed to follow Christ. He said, I literally made life hell for her. I, I sought to irritate her and stifle her and stop her in every way that I could because she wanted to follow Jesus Christ. And he said, for 10 years, after making life hell for her, all she did, she lived out 1 Peter 3, he said, she just had a submissive spirit to me. She served me. And he said, after 10 years, I finally broke down and I just asked her, you know, why don't you retaliate? Why don't you fight with me? And she said, it's because I submit to Christ. He said, that was the day that I broke down. He said, it took 10 years. I broke down and I submitted to Christ too. And he said, it was because of my wife's submission. Sometimes we think of submission as just this, this lowly, inferior thing, but it's as powerful as the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? 
And women, don't, don't look at submission through the eyes of the world, through the eyes of feminism. Submission is the power of God. And it can be used to really knock some of those silly men into to sensibility, <laughs> to follow Christ in a greater way. It's the tool that God has given you, not to just be a doormat, to, but, but to be a way of influencing men in your life, to follow Christ in a greater way. Well, she lives in, in continual submission as she waits. Look at verses 8 and 9. It happened in the middle of the night. She's just standing still and she's waiting for the Lord to wake up Boaz. And how does the Lord wake up Boaz? Look at verse 8. In the middle of the night, the man was startled. You know, everybody that says there was some kind of hanky-panky going on here, there's no way that that was happening because he wakes up and he's, he, he's completely surprised and shocked. What is this girl doing at my feet, right? And it's because she had taken his blanket off. You know, I have a lovely wife, but we always have this tussle, you know, who gets the blanket at night, you know? And somehow in the middle of the night, the blanket's off me. And it's, it's all the way on the other side. And, and I wake up with that sense of, ah, I'm cold, you know? And, and that's what God did to wake up Boaz. And so he's like, where, where, where's my blanket? And then he's like, what's this girl doing down there? He has no idea what's going on. How can you say that there is any impurity in this passage? There's just a sense of integrity with both of them. And he says, who are you? Maybe he didn't even recognize her at first because she had his feet lying down, being still as a mouse, you know. And she says, and she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. And, and this is the whole point of why she had moved his, his, his blanket up, his outer garment up. She said, could you, in just grace, spread your skirt, your covering over your maid, for you are my goal. And she's just opening up. This is the first conversation. Is there any possibility that you would be my husband, my provider? She's waiting for him. But she's bold, isn't it? Submission doesn't mean you just act silent. And Husbands, we, we, we love it when our wives speak up and, and give us counsel. Ultimately, we take the leadership. But she's, she's giving him this, this suggestion and laying it at his feet and taking even a sense of initiative in that sense. But she's waiting for him to make the final decision. Submission doesn't stifle you. It causes you to have a great position of influence. And she's using language that is the language of God rescuing sinners and even Israel from poverty and making them his bride. Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 8. Then I passed by you, this is God speaking, and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love, so I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. And I also swore and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares Yahweh Elohim. Because all marriage ultimately points to Jesus who covers his people with his redemptive love, with his blood from the cross, isn't it? Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And it's not to get from her, but it's to give to her. And that's what Ruth is just gently placing before Boaz. To be under authority is not a debt to your personality, ladies. To be under authority is a noble goal. It's to flourish. It's to be a woman of influence. It's to be a woman of impact. Because what happens here, as we look at the end of the story, is God is able to preserve the line of David and the line of Jesus because of this woman's submission. That's how powerful submission is. Just another verse that can encourage you 
ladies, sisters, is, is the idea of submission is as high and lofty as Jesus Christ. And that takes it from the gutter that this world places it in and helps us to understand it as a beautiful thing. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, but I want you to understand, and this is good, that the head of every man is Christ. So men, just in case you think that you're, you know, the all in all and everybody is under you, uh, by the way, first of all, not all women are supposed to submit to all men, but it's only wives submit to your own husbands. So don't walk away from the session and say, women, get me some tea. You know, that's not the point of this. It's, it's within that relationship that God gives a husband and a wife. But, but first of all, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 is the idea that, you know what, you're under authority too. Under Christ your Lord. But then it goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, and the head of a wife is her husband. I'm reading for the ESV. I think that's a good translation. And then he goes on to say this amazing thing, and the head of Christ is God. Even within the Trinity, there's submission. And it is powerful because that is the source of redemption for you and me, isn't it? So women, next time, don't look at culture, but look at Calvary. Look at the cross where Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. That's the great and lofty model that you have even as you seek to influence uh, the men or the man in your life as you submit to him. Well, let's look at Boaz. Boaz shows us leadership, but leadership that is strong and a protection and not a threat. And men need to be strong not in seeking to lead for their own benefit, but seeking to lead for the benefit of others, just like Christ leads His church. And as you look at verse 10, Boaz's his response is, Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness, what you've said to me, to be better than the first, by not going after young men, <laughs> whether rich or poor. I love the integrity of the relationship that these two have and it's a curious statement that he makes in in some ways he's saying that this act of hesed or grace that ruth has shown towards him is even greater than what she did for her her mom-in-law naomi how how can he say that well with naomi ruth had shown charity and kindness but boaz is saying you know what my daughter you're even growing in your faith now because you're preferring a man who's godly than rather some strapping young man, you know, that just looks macho and young. You're choosing to look at the character of a man. And I see in this a growth in grace. And even in the way in which he leads her, he leads her by praising her. You know, men, we need to learn this, don't we? In, in terms of a leadership that doesn't demand, but a leadership that even cultivates godliness through praise. And he praises her for the things that he sees that God is doing in her life. Not that she's just nice, because nice is filthy rags. Our righteous acts are filthy rags. But that she's godly. That she's growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our first concern in leadership, right? Not how she cooks and how she you know, irons my clothes and all of that, but does she love Christ? And that's what concerns Boaz. What he says, this is really... Interesting, he says, verse 11, Now my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you whatever you ask. It's just, it's just as quick as that, right? 
My wife and I, we decided in one week we were going to get married. You know? <laughs> Once you know, you know. And, of course, we had a lot of counsel. But he, he says, I know. I've seen your character. I've seen you for the last three months. I'm going to marry you. You know, we're not going to play around the, the dating game or whatever. And, you know, three months later, I'm going to break up with you. I'm going to do what you are seeking God for. Now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Hang on. That phrase, women of excellence, have you heard that before? Proverbs 31. And I'm, I'm pretty positive. I know sometimes there's some debate that who wrote Proverbs 31? Solomon. What does Solomon say in Proverbs 31? A woman of excellence. Who can find? She is worth more than jewels. <laughs> I think Solomon was thinking about his great-grandmother. And he was thinking even about the first words of love and affection that his great-grandpa said to his great-grandma. And that had become the, the model of, of godliness even in their family for generation upon generation. And he said, I need to write a poem about it so that people in the church will keep singing about the excellence of a godly woman. And that's the background of Proverbs 31. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, the book of Ruth is, is sometimes just this tucked away book, but it's influenced so many different aspects of our thinking about manhood and womanhood. And so Boaz praises her godliness and then he seeks to lead her not only by praising her godliness but planning to protect her. Verses 12 and 13. Now he says, It's true that I'm a close relative. I'm a goel. But something that you and Naomi haven't thought of and I want to just add a little bit more in terms of protection to you. He says, However, I've been around the block a while. There's another goel and there could be a little bit of a legal problem and we've got to deal with that first. See, he doesn't, you know think just with his heart, but he thinks with his head. And sometimes that would, that's what you need, right? As you're, as you're seeking to, to be pleasing to the Lord, and he's even thinking ahead about ways in which he can guard and protect this woman. And he's thinking about her, not just about property or other things. He said, remain this night, and when morning comes, I'm going to go and deal with it. I'm not going to procrastinate, think about it and deliberate for three months. I'm going to do it tomorrow in the morning. What a man. If he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives because of God's grace in my life. Lie down until morning. Again, people have made so much nonsense about this that there was impurity taking place here. But... There's no sense of that. If you look at the next passage, not only is he, is he protecting her, but he's also purifying her. Verse 14, She lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. Why? Because he said to her, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. She leaves early. Again, before the sun rises, before anyone can see her. And so they were chatting, chatting, chatting probably. I'm just reading between the lines. And then he says, Ruth, the sun's up. You've got to go. We can't just be here. We need to have propriety before other men even in the way in which we live out this relationship that God has given us. And I'm, I'm interested in your purity. What does he, he send her away with though? Again, he said, give me the cloak, verse 15, that is on you and hold it 
So he held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. That's probably another 15 kgs. I mean, these guys were weightlifters. <laughs> Experiencing the grace of God in real solid barley weight. Less than what she gleaned the first day, but still a lot. He calls her daughter, right? You remember what we were talking about in, Ephi- in, in 1 Timothy 5? The best way to be pure is to think of a woman first as your sister before you think of her as your wife, to think of her as family. And that should continue, actually, even as you're married. And that's the way in which he lives, which is the way in which Christ loves his church. Ephesians 5:25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. That's the the goal of a godly leader, to sanctify his wife, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. You know, some couples that I talk to, they say, one of the best things that we do is not just reading books, but reading the Bible together. And I would say, start there. You know, sometimes we want to always run to this book and that book that's about the Bible, but how about reading the word together? and growing in the washing of the word together, that he might present, verse 27, Ephesians 5, to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So we've looked at the woman and her her satisfaction in God and submission. We've looked at the man and the way in which he leads in such a way that is not thinking about his own benefit. Leadership is not for self, but leadership is for others. And then finally, there's a third party in the whole marriage courtship thing, and it's the parents. And so we see Naomi at the end. Look at the balance of the Bible again. We see Naomi and her response to all of this. I remember when I was seeking Nicole's hand in marriage, and we had decided to marry each other in India, and this was you know, the long time ago, before there was great access to, uh, you know, cheap phone calls and things like that. And so her parents, she's an only child, my wife, so they're still working up on how to forgive me for stealing her. And we sent, you know, foolish young people that we were, we just sent an email saying, you know, mom and dad, I've met a boy, he's in India, you know, you may have seen him on some of the mission teams training, and I'm going to marry him. And that was it. Love you, Nicole. <laughs> they were in shock. They thought their daughter had lost her mind. And they, they, uh, they said they just sat and stared at each other and stared at the wall for three days, thinking, what is happening? They were believers, though. They trusted in God. And so we um, had an opportunity. Nicole was still in India, and I had the opportunity to go with my dad and my brother, you know, the, the three men, and we got in a car and we drove to Visalia where they were uh, just to meet them and to talk to them and to ask for their daughter's hand in marriage. And I was expecting that I was going to be grilled and barbecued. You know, her dad is this six foot four Swedish man and I'm not. And so <laughs> the first thing is he gives me this big bear hug. I thought he was going to kill me. And he makes hunting knives as a hobby. So he had intentionally hung up hunting knives all over the house you know these big bone handles and these huge things and I was wondering what he was going to do with them and then we go to the lunch table and instead of you know simple dinner knives he's put hunting knives on the table as well 
you know, at each place setting. So I got, I got the message. And I thought, okay, here it goes. And I was just ready for all these questions. And they just asked me two questions. You know, why do you love our daughter? And what do you intend to do? You know, and I, I answered, I love her for her character. And I, I want to do ministry with her in India. And then I was expecting this avalanche of investigations. You know, what's your financial status? Have you invested in the future? What's your bank account? You know, and all of that. And they said, that's it, son. You have our blessing. And so I, I was shocked. I said, that's it? Aren't you going to ask me some more? And they said, no, because we trust in God. And we've raised our daughter to trust in God. And so if our daughter has made a decision, we trust in her. And there was just that sense of, uh, and I still love them. They're just like my own mom and dad. That sense of just submitting to God's sovereignty. And I think that's what we see in Naomi as she responds to everything that has happened. She just says, God, you are sovereign. And if you have provided a man who is godly, and I trust Ruth, and I trust Boaz from what I've heard of him, then I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to create problems and objections. I'm not going to try and create all kinds of human doubts and obstacles. I'm going to trust in God. And that's the role of the parent, isn't it? And it's hard sometimes for parents to get into that idea of just leaving and cleaving, but it can only happen when we recognize that God is in the picture here as well. And that's what Naomi realizes. She realizes that God had provided, and she finds solace in God's sovereignty. Verse 16, when Ruth comes back, she came to her mother-in-law, who apparently had not been sleeping all night long, (laughs) because she was awake. (laughs) waiting at the door at the first question how did it go my daughter and she told her all that the man had done for her and Ruth said these six measures of barley he gave to me mom and he said do not go back to your mom-in-law empty-handed and and immediately there was those connections made that Boaz recognized that he was not just marrying Ruth he was marrying the family and he was showing his indication of, of godliness and wisdom even in that He's provided for you as well, mom-in-law. And so her response is, I can rest in God because I see a man who honors family. And I can rest in God because I see a man who is bound by God's word. Verse 18, she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. Let's rest tonight now. Whatever's left of the night, whatever's left of the morning. For this man, we can rest Because this man, under God, will not rest until he has settled the matter. Just like Christ's love for his bride, Jesus Christ is so intense in his love that at times in John chapter 4, he would not even eat until he had seen that woman at the well saved. Do you remember that? He will fulfill the will of his Father. And his disciples had gone to get, you know, lunch or something at McDonald's, wherever it was, and they came back and they said, Jesus, have you eaten? And what does Jesus say? I have food to eat that you know nothing about. The rescuing of my bride is more important to me than lunch. And Ruth recognizes that attitude in this man. Naomi recognizes that attitude in this man. Boaz as well. That his food was to do the will of him who had given him grace, his father in heaven. And so she rested in him and she gave her blessing. God 
can produce great productivity in our lives by even making us men and women that are not you know, so much focused on marriage, but are focused on Him. I always tell people, don't chase after marriage. Chase after Christ. And when you do, God will bring you another person that is chasing after Christ in His own time. And it is His doing and His will that can cause us to be even better. Two is better than one. To be a team that creates those pillars that the church needs, that the community needs to see the aroma of the gospel of the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? May God help us to be faithful to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for these dear people that speak to us from the pages of Scripture and encourage us and challenge us and exhort us to be more like You. Lord, help us to elevate submission, both as men and women, to not being something that is low, but something that is high and something that is exalted, even for the world to see its power in influencing life and in influencing communities. Lord, help us to bring leadership to the tender point of Christ-likeness, where it is not a place of advantage, but a place of service, a place of sacrifice, a place of provision, a place of commitment. Help us to show the world who Jesus is, Lord, even in our relationships. May you be exalted in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.